The following program includes descriptions of graphic and sexually explicit violence. This show may not be suitable for those affected by such descriptions or for young listeners. Parental discretion is advised. Previously on Stranglers. Five elderly women had been murdered in Boston. In December 1962, another victim was found. 20-year-old Sophie Clark was strangled with three stockings and a half slip. I remember hearing someone say, he must have hated his mother. Did he hate his sisters now? Because now he was killing young girls. Or did he just hate women? The strangling of 20-year-old Sophie Clark confounded the police by contradicting what they thought they knew about the killer. With this drastic change in victim type from older white women to a young black woman, Boston faced the real possibility that there was a second strangler, a copycat. In effect, you had a template for murder presented to you by the press. Tie a stocking or a bathrobe sash around her neck, blame it on the strangler, and you're home free. While the murder of Sophie Clark raised all kinds of questions about the strangler's identity, the next killing did not. Three weeks after Sophie died, 23-year-old Patricia Bassett was strangled in her apartment, another young victim. But this time, the case seemed much more straightforward. All the circumstantial evidence, all my research, the interviews, everything pointed in one conclusive direction. Or so I believed. In this episode, I'll tell you about what happened to Patricia Bassett. But you'll also hear an incredible story I came across this year. A strangler story no one's ever heard until today. This conversation took away my own certainty about the Bassett murder. And it could be one of the most frustrating missed opportunities in the whole Boston Strangler investigation. His hands were very, very large, very strong looking. And I remember detecting the slightest bit of a tremble in his hands. From Stitcher and Northern Light Productions, in partnership with Investigation Discovery, this is Stranglers. I'm Portland Helmick. Articles of silk or satin... They are acting out the forbidden impulses. It's the unknown that we fear. Episode 4, Abnormal Psychology. Where do you begin with the strangler? You begin anew each time he strikes. In the seventh similar instance... The stalking strangling of 23-year-old Patricia Bissett, we started at the death scene, 515 Park Drive. On the morning of New Year's Eve, 1962, the offices of Engineering Systems, Inc. were open. Jules Rothman, the vice president of the company, arrived at his secretary's apartment to give her a ride to work. When she didn't answer her door, he figured she was still sleeping and headed to the office. Later in the day, when she still hadn't shown up, Rothman called her several times. No answer. So he drove back to 515 Park Drive. Hello? 
His secretary, Patricia Bissett, lived in the ground-level apartment. When she didn't answer the door, Rothman found the building's janitor. Using a small stepladder, Rothman crawled through Bissett's window, then opened the door. As the janitor entered the apartment, Rothman said, She's dead. She's got a stocking around her throat. Record American, January 1st, 1963. Strangler strikes again. A beautiful 23-year-old secretary was found slain Monday in the apartment at 515 Park Drive, Back Bay, where she lived alone. Three nylon stockings and a blouse were twisted tightly around the neck of Patricia Jane Bissett when her body was discovered by a building custodian and a family friend who had become alarmed at her failure to report for work. Her partially clothed body was sprawled on a bed in the first floor apartment with the covers pulled over her face. She had not been beaten or otherwise abused, medical examiner Michael A. Luongo said. Though the examiner's report said there had been no evidence of abuse, there was an indication of recent sexual activity. There was no sign of forcible entry into the apartment. Patricia, whose widowed mother lives in Middlebury, Vermont, was the latest victim in a chain of murders that has baffled police and terrorized greater Boston women since Mrs. Two previous victims, Anna Slessers and Sophie Clark, had been strangled in the same Back Bay neighborhood in which Patricia Bissett had been living. Sophie's murder had occurred a few weeks earlier, and a police squad, specially trained by the FBI, was patrolling the streets of the Back Bay. They were looking for Sophie's killer the very day Patricia was strangled. The press continued to report on the story as if there were only one strangler, the Boston Strangler, singular. But here was a second young victim. Once again, the police had circumstantial evidence suggesting that Passat had been killed by someone close to her, someone she knew. How long have you been lovers? We weren't lovers, exactly. We were, let's see, I would say January or February of this year. This is a reenactment from a transcript of the Boston PD's 1963 interrogation of Jules Rothman, who was married and had children. You visited her many times at her apartment? Just when she asked me to come over. She trusts people. Was she an easy girl to have intercourse with? Yes, that is the trouble with her. Was she a pushover? Yes, she was. In other words, she didn't say no. (laughs) Not to me. You knew there was something wrong with her? She she told me she missed her period. When did she tell you this? About a month ago. And what did you do about it? Uh, I got in touch with a friend of mine. Was she definitely pregnant by him? I know she was pregnant. Is it? Well, she was pregnant, and... um, I mean, there was probably no way for them to prove that at the time. Well, there was no indication of another... Boyfriend or, you know, lover who who would have been uh, responsible. That's Susan Kelly, the author of the book, The Boston Stranglers. She spent years digging into the case, and she's one of only a few people outside the BPD who has been granted access to the original police department files. Side note, our request to the attorney general was denied. The transcript of Jules Rothman's interrogation was something Kelly brought to light in her book. And 
you know, at the time and out of wedlock pregnancy was a social stigma from which a young woman could not recover. Uh, there was no legal abortion, of course, so that option was not open to her. And she was also, as far as I can recall, an observant Roman Catholic, so abortion, regardless of whether the option had been available, was not an option for her because of her religious beliefs. According to Susan Kelly, the friend Rothman got in touch with was his colleague, John Price. He told police about his meeting with Rothman, which took place two days before Patricia's death. (sighs) Jules told me some friend of his knows a girl in trouble and he thought I could help him locate someone in the, uh, the abortion field. I told him this was wrong, lawfully and morally. But... I told Jules that my wife knew of a convent located in Laconia, New Hampshire, that would care for any girl in the condition of pregnancy, unmarried. I even called a priest named Father Baker and explained the situation. A pregnant woman was dead. The father of the child was a married man, and he'd been actively seeking an illegal abortion for her. There was another detail of Bissett's murder that implicated Jules Rothman. Well, in the Patricia Bissett murder, one of the striking things was how the body had been found, which was basically in bed with the covers pulled up to her chin. This was in stark contrast to the posing of the older victims' bodies. As we learned in the last episode, this would have been a significant change in the ritualized behavior of a serial killer's M.O. And then there's the way Jules Rothman announced his discovery of Patricia's body. The first thing that Patricia's boss said when he brought people to the crime scene was, oh my God, she's been strangled. Unfortunately, you could not see that she had been strangled just by looking at her because she was lying in bed and the covers were pulled up to her chin. Again, just as if she had been tucked into bed by a lover and was lying peacefully asleep. In other words, Susan Kelly alleges that when Rothman entered Patricia Bissett's apartment, he already knew that she'd been strangled because he had done it. This was someone who was in, you know, the classic dilemma of a man who has a mistress. You know, he has a wife and he has children. You know, it's not the first time that a woman has been murdered for that reason. The police hoped to indict Rothman for murder, but it never happened. Yeah, the strongest suspect in the Patricia Bissett murder was her boss, Jules Rothman. Uh, But again, you know, you always need what's called a smoking gun in order to make an arrest. And that was the problem in many of these cases. I have long agreed with Susan Kelly and the investigators who believed Jules Rothman had murdered his mistress, Patricia Bissett. Of all 13 Boston Strangler cases, Bissett's murder looked like the one most likely to have been committed by a copycat. Rothman had both motive and opportunity. But then a few months ago, I followed a new lead and found Adele Roof. Hi, Adele. Hello, Portland. That summer of 1962, where were you living then? 
515 Park Drive, Boston. Adele Roof had been the previous tenant in the exact same ground-level apartment as Patricia Bissett. Five months before Bissett was strangled in that apartment. There's a knock on my door. Adele has never told this story publicly before. And so I just said, come on in. Adele's story is coming up after this short break. And now, back to Stranglers. Hi, Adele. Hello, Portland. Thank you so much for doing this. Can you hear me okay? Yes, just fine. Thank you. Okay, great. So, Adele, before we get into all the questions... We found Adele Roof because of an online post she'd made in a forum about the Boston Strangler. I reached out to see if she'd tell me her story. She said she was glad to, even though it was one of the most traumatic experiences of her life. You know, I'm already starting to feel very emotional about this. I hope I don't cry in the middle of this. But anyway... So let's just start off really simple. So Mm -hmm. tell me your name and what you do. All right. My name is Adele Roof, and I'm retired from full-time work. I have a variety of... Today, Adele Roof is 74 years old and lives in Virginia. She describes herself as a professional dabbler. She was a singer-songwriter for a while. She now works as a peace activist, and she's studying Spanish in part so she can communicate better with her Bolivian son-in-law. But back in 1962, Adele was a 20-year-old college student studying at Boston University. She lived in a neighborhood known as the Back Bay, sharing a small apartment with two other women. That summer, she was taking a course in abnormal psychology. In fact, um, I look at the front of the psychology book, which I still have, and I have my name in it and my address, and it was 515 Park Drive, Boston. Remember, this is the same ground-level apartment Patricia Bissett would occupy a few months later. In July of 1962, Patricia Bissett was still alive. But the Strangler had claimed three victims, Anna Slessers, Nina Nichols, and Helen Blake. So the story was big enough that Adele would have read about it in the papers. What papers? I wasn't reading any newspapers. This was not the age of information. You know, just wasn't paying that close attention to it at that point. If she had been following the story, Adele might have noticed that the first strangling victim, Anna Slessers, had been killed in an apartment just a mile away. Manual strangulation was the immediate cause of the death of Mrs. Anna Slezers, 56, a divorcee, whose body was found Thursday night in a third-floor apartment at 77 Gainsborough Street, Back Bay, a medical examiner's apartment. This was the Back Bay area of Boston, and it seemed to be a very sordid area. I I see the neighborhood as just swarming with young people, with college students. Lots of guys uh, drinking, throwing beer bottles out on the street, grabbing and groping. (laughs) Uh, Girls trying to get us to come into uh, big fraternity parties. Um, I remember walking uh, 
Many times this would happen on a Sunday night with a bunch of girlfriends walking to the sub shop to get a sub, and uh, we'd pass by a flasher. Peeping uh, Tom's flashers, <laughs> that was the Back Bay area in those days. It was very intimidating for me in some respects because I was from a very small town in upstate New York, and this was just so culturally strange and new for me. In the midst of all of this, walking down the street one day, Adele was approached by a stranger. This guy passed me and asked if he could help carry my groceries. He uh, definitely looked different from college guys. His hair was more like Elvis's and a pompadour and kind of greased back. He wasn't dressed like college guys that I can recall. I remember he had a jacket on that looked like it was a little bit too big for him. But he was very deferential and asked if he could help carry my bags. Did you think that was weird? It reminded me of old school politeness, actually. I didn't think it was weird. It just seemed like a a friendly thing to do. Uh, I did refuse, but we, we chatted for a couple of minutes. Do I live in that neighborhood? What do I think of it? Uh, am I in school? A few things like that. And then what, what happened after that? I believe I saw him one or two more times on the street. The second time I saw him, he told me that he was a scout for a modeling agency. And he showed me a card. And he said there were these beautiful gowns. And I would just be so perfect. Would I be willing to be photographed? The pay was really good. I was somewhat incredulous. When I heard this part of Adele's story, I thought the whole you-could-be-a-model pickup line had to have been played out even then. But when you're from a small town in your early 20s and someone who seems nice tells you you could be a model, you wonder. My mother had told me a few years before that the movie star Kim Novak had been discovered at Schwab's drugstore (laughs) in Hollywood. So this is the age of Cinderella and Snow White, so anything's possible. But I was somewhat suspicious because I even remember saying to him, could I bring my girlfriend with me if I accepted this gig? And he said, oh, absolutely, you could bring two girlfriends, no problem whatsoever. So, of course, (laughs) that made me feel a little bit more trusting about the whole thing. We met on the street like that maybe another time or two and did a little bit more talking about it. And at some place in there, he must have learned where I lived. It's very possible that I even told him where I lived or he followed me. About a week later, Adele heard a knock on her door. It was maybe 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. I was sitting on the couch reading a book, and I just said, come on in. Are you serious? That's, that's what it was like in 1962? So if somebody knocks on your door, you don't even know who it is, and you just say, come on in? Yes. It was probably foolish, but that's kind of what everybody did. We were casual about it. It was a college neighborhood. Uh, So he knocks on the door. I'm sitting on the couch and and describe what happened. I'm sitting on the couch. Uh, He's there at the door. Um, 
he opens it. He pretty much stands at the door. And uh, I do not recall feeling afraid. And he said, I just thought I would come by and talk to you a little bit more about this possibility of you being the model for this photography agency. And I said, oh, okay, great. Love to hear more about it. At some point, he said to me, "Um, but we only have certain sizes of gowns, and I would need to measure you to find out if you could fit into those gowns. And I said, okay, uh, no problem. So we both ended up in the middle of the living room. He gets down on his knees in front of me. In my mind, I see him kneeling on one knee, uh, looking up at me, and uh, he puts his two thumbs together and spreads his fingers wide as if they could wrap around my waist or my hips. And I remember thinking... So he didn't have a measuring tape? No measuring tape. No measuring tape. So he's measuring you with his hands? Well, this is all happening very, very quickly. Almost faster than my conscious brain could compute. And his hands were very, very large, very strong looking. And I remember detecting the slightest bit of a tremble in his hands. Today, Adele recalls that slight tremor as one of those little details, a small thing that catches the eye and appears to make reality shift. And I said at that moment, You know, my roommates have just come back from the night shift. They're nurses. And let's just do this outside because I don't want to do anything in here that would disturb them. Was that true? No, it wasn't true. It was a a fabrication. So at that point, he looked up at me, kind of frowned and said, oh, your, your roommates are here? I said, yeah, they're sleeping in the bedroom. And... He said, "Oh, all right. Well, I'll I'll meet you. Uh, I'll meet you outside." I said, "Yeah, just go on outside. When I see you on the stoop, I'll come out there. Uh, I'll just get my cigarettes and go out there." In those days, I smoked. And what happened out there? He told me a little bit more about himself. He had been in the army and had won prizes for boxing contests, that he was very strong and very powerful and really prided himself on that particular skill. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like he was trying to impress you. Yes. And he just said, well, listen, I'll come back another day when it's more convenient. A few weeks went by, and in that time, news of the Strangler had reached Adele. We were becoming more cautious, more suspicious, more nervous. I started to lock my door and and make sure the chain was on the door. In fact, not only that, but one of the guys who lived next door to me, I even started to have a few queasy feelings about him, wondering (laughs) if maybe he was the Boston Strangler. Mm -hmm. But I did not suspect 
this particular person. Okay. So he came to your apartment again? Yes. A a few weeks later, there was a knock at the door, and I went to the door, and I opened it, and he was standing in front of me at the door. He didn't say anything, and at first I wasn't nervous. But then I looked down, and he was uh, performing a sexual act on himself there at the door. He was masturbating. He was masturbating, exactly. So I immediately shut the door (laughs) and made sure the bolt lock was, you know, locked and whatever. Oh, my God. And then what, so did he, did he go away or did he say anything or? From the other side of the door, a few minutes later, he started to beg me in a pleading, almost a crying voice, please, please, please uh, let me talk to you and explain So I said to him, um, go outside and sit on the stoop. And when I see you out there, I will come out and talk with you. And remember, I'm taking a course in abnormal psychology this summer. So I have a mixture and I've all had this feeling all through college. Oh, all this, all this knowledge is just about, you know, textbook learning. I have this other side of me that wants to learn from, you know, wants to know about life from real experience, (laughs) not just the textbook. So there was a somewhat of a curiosity there. And I went out, I didn't, I don't recall feeling particularly afraid. I sat down uh, next to him on the stoop. He apologized profusely for what had happened. And then he proceeded to speak in a way that uh, was very strange and incoherent. He he was frantically talking, please, please reassure me that you will not uh, tell my mother about what has just happened. And I just was mostly listening and saying, no, of course not. I, I, I won't, uh, I won't say a word. I picture myself in Adele's position. What would I do if a strange man had just masturbated in my doorway and was now babbling about his mother? Would I smile and nod? Or would I run away? Or like Adele, would I be so curious about it all that I'd stick with it, keep talking to him, try to understand him? Uh, The conversation maybe went on for another uh, 10 minutes, but it was a certain type of incoherent rambling that had very little to do with uh, what was really happening in the moment. So you knew then, maybe at that point, this guy was not all there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the summer, Adele Roof moved out of her apartment at 515 Park Drive. In the fall of 1962, Patricia Bassett moved in. I think I I could just know the bed that she was in. I think that was my bed. Adele says she never gave much thought to the strange man who visited her at her old apartment. Not until the following winter, in 1963, two months after Sophie Clark's murder. The Boston Strangler was still on the loose, and by that time, Adele Roof was living with a new roommate in nearby Brighton. Uh, we're living in a very residential, elderly, working-class neighborhood. There was a knock on the door. 
After the break, Adele gets pulled into the Boston Strangler story in ways she could never have imagined. And now back to Stranglers. In the winter of 1963, soon after she moved into her new apartment in Brighton, Adele heard a knock at her door. It was two policemen. And uh, they wanted to ask me about this man that I had met the summer before. And so by that point when they came to you, did they say to you, oh, and we're coming to you because you lived at 515 Park Drive and that's where Patricia Bissett was murdered? This sounds really, really strange. But my memory is, is that I was not aware at that point that I'd been living in the apartment where she was strangled. While police were investigating the murder of Patricia Bissett, the secretary who was believed to have been killed by her boss, Jules Rothman, a neighbor at 515 Park Drive had told them about Adele's encounter with the creepy model scout, the man who measured her with his hands. Police asked Adele if she would come down to the station and look at mugshots. I recall it being uh, an extremely daunting, frustrating experience. There were these huge books with maybe a hundred little pictures on a page, about one inch by two inches, two inches in length, one inch across, all in black and white. Everybody looked the same, whether they were African-American or or blonde and blue-eyed at that point. I mean, after a while, it was dizzying. And you didn't see anybody that looked like the guy that had come to your apartment? I didn't see anybody that looked like him, no. Adele went down to the station several times and never spotted the suspect. So she went on with her life. One cold night, Adele and her roommate went to see Lawrence of Arabia that nearly four-hour epic starring Peter O'Toole. After the movie, they caught a late train home. And we entered a car of the MTA and sat down on one of the side seats. The car was empty except for one person sitting to my left and back several rows facing front. And I looked, and there he was, this person again. And not only there he was, but um, he was masturbating again. Unbelievable. Did he notice you? I was worried that he might notice me. I mean, there was a fear reaction there, but he was, it was as if he was in a trance in another world oblivious to what was around him. I don't remember exactly what I said to my roommate, but I indicated that we were going to stay on that car until he got off, and then we were going to follow him. It's a little hard to imagine that a young woman out late at night would have decided to follow a man she suspected of killing seven women. But when the man got off the train, Adele and her roommate did too. It was very, very instinctive. You know, in situations like this, there's just something that wells up in you 
that you just know what the right thing is to do. I just was so determined. If this was somebody who might be the Boston Strangler, if this was somebody who was killing women, I was going to follow that lead. Adele and her roommate found themselves in a rundown area of Boston. It was winter, it was dark, it was cold. I remember that the streets were wet and uh, we kept a safe distance behind him and we waited until he went into an apartment building and when I saw where he went in and I got the number of the building and the street, I went to the nearest payphone and called the police station. Adele explained who she was and that she'd already been to the station several times in hopes of identifying the killer. She mentioned the names of the detectives she had talked to and gave the police the man's address. And did they contact you? They did not contact me for a few days. And I kept wondering, what's happening here? I almost expected to read in the paper <laughs> something spectacular about, uh, about that whole thing. A few days later, the detective called her and asked her to come back down to look at more mugshots. And I said, whatever happened a few nights ago? And uh, he said, what do you mean? And I told him what had happened. And he said, well, I, I never got the message. And I said, you didn't, you didn't get the message. And uh, I think I was very upset at that point. And... Perhaps he got a little bit defensive because he said, look, we, we just get thousands of leads. You know, sometimes we just can't follow them all. <laughs> Meanwhile, I felt like I had maybe risked my life or my roommate's life to follow this guy into some unsavory area of Boston. And, uh, and he kind of blew me off. And so I think I also, after that, uh, lost interest in helping very much. <laughs> Did you ever get contacted by the police again? I don't recall ever getting contacted by the police again, no. Police had received other reports of a man posing as a modeling scout, knocking on women's doors and asking to measure them. But they couldn't track that man, and they didn't suspect he was linked to the Strangler murders. Adele's encounter and the fact that Patricia Bissett was strangled in the same apartment where this man had visited Adele twice before, these two things could have been the lead police were desperate for. In the end, Adele's encounter may have just been lost among the thousands of other leads the police received. If this man was the Boston Strangler, then I wonder what it was about Adele that kept her safe. I come back to that moment when the man was in her living room, trying to measure her with trembling hands. Adele told a lie that probably saved her life. I asked Adele about that moment. What, what made you say, my roommates are in the next room and they're sleeping, and that wasn't true? So over a half a century, I've been asking myself that same thing. It feels like such a mystery that I perhaps was picking up cues on a subliminal level that I instinctively, like a blink, like you go to, you know, swat something away from your eye, that I instinctively reacted to without emotion. But I saw myself in those days 
as I would say overly accommodating, insecure, very trusting, very gullible, not quick to think of a comeback or anything like that. And yet that came out of me. Of all the things Adele said during our conversation, this was perhaps the one thing that surprised me the most. I saw myself in those days as insecure, very gullible. Insecure, hardly. It takes a courageous woman to follow a man she had good reason to believe was the Boston Strangler. Also, while she may have been a bit too trusting at first, Adele Roof was not gullible. The ability to see a tremble in a stranger's hand suggests that Adele was paying close attention to him. She may have let him in once, but the second time, the chain stayed on the door. So in the end, Adele was not fooled by him. In all the other Strangler cases, there had been no sign of forcible entry. To my mind, Adele's story suggested a possible explanation. The Strangler, or if there were more than one, this Strangler, didn't just attack women randomly. This guy with the Elvis pompadour and his old-school politeness did small talk on the street, paid some compliments, then made a few rounds until his presence was almost expected. Perhaps the third time the strange man came to visit Adele, he was determined to strike, only to find a different young woman home alone in that very same apartment. And if Patricia Bissett didn't have the same instinct Adele had, perhaps she let him in. I could see where she could have been susceptible to, uh, yeah, come on in, you know, have a cup of coffee. I came so close to being that believing and vulnerable myself that I could really see another woman being trusting, friendly, not wanting to hurt somebody's feelings. So what are we on right now? Park Drive. This is Park Drive? It's got to be really close. A few days after hearing Adele's story, my producer Taylor and I found ourselves on Park Drive. 509. Can you go slow? Yeah. 515, that's it. Boston University. So this is where Adele lived. And Patricia is now a Boston University dormitory. As we drove slowly past, I pictured two scenarios at once. The man without a measuring tape knocking on the door. And outside, Jules Rothman using a stepladder to crawl through his secretary's window. And those college students have no idea now that they're living in a dormitory where this happened 50 years ago, this sickening murder. Adele told me a few other things that further implicated the man with the pompadour. And we'll come back to those other things in a future episode. But for now, I'm stuck on a couple of big ifs. If Adele hadn't blinked, would we be telling her story instead of her? And if the police had followed up on Adele's lead, would the later victims still be alive? Adele is also proof that even 50 years later, there are stories waiting to be found. Stories that could bring us a little closer to knowing what happened to the 13 victims of the Boston Strangler.
Stranglers comes from Stitcher and Northern Light Productions in partnership with Investigation Discovery. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Susan Gray. And the show is produced by me, Portland Helmick, with Sharon Mashihi, Ben Shapiro, the Reverend John Delore, Kate Tibbetts, and Taylor Duwicki. Special thanks to James Perla, Ben Avishai, Maleka Woluchem, and Charlie Thurston, and to the Harry Ransom Center Archives for access to the Gerald Frank Boston Strangler recordings. The actors who appear in this episode are R. Ward Duffy, Carol Drews, Chris Bannon, Joel Johnstone. Original scoring is by Allison Leighton Brown. Stranglers is produced with the assistance of John D. Natale of D. Natale Detective Agency in Boston. To learn more about Detective Phil D. Natale, his sons, John and Richard, and the world of private investigation, you can read John's memoir, The Family Business Memoirs of a Boston Private Eye available at www.familybusinessthebook.com or Amazon. To read more about Phil's investigation of the Strangler case and view the web series and documentary showcasing his files, visit www.strangleholdthemovie.com. You can find Stranglers through a lot of the great podcasting apps, including Stitcher. If you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. It helps other listeners find the show. I'm Portland Helmick. Thanks for listening. Next time on Stranglers. Our investigation takes us south. They called Boston. We have a Strangler here, very similar to yours. You might want to send somebody down. They sent down Lieutenant John Donovan. And then north. Maybe this was about where his house was. On the trail of another compelling but little-known suspect in the Boston Strangler case. He said, son, I I had the Strangler. I had him on the cusp of confessing. That's next time on Stranglers. Stranglers.